Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 29th, 2022, and we're wrapping the year up with a series of shows looking back at 2022 more broadly and imagining what 2023 will have in store for us. An interesting piece recently uh, from NPR about how labor unions made big news this year and five reasons why the big news is a little bit more complicated uh, than it first appears. The NPR points out that the number of unions soared, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there have been any great union victories a lot of a lot of fights are going on none of them are finished um, and even while union leaders got big raises and uh, there's a lot of public support things haven't changed that dramatically one man who has done a lot of work looking at labor unions and uh, workers in general is my guest today rick wartsman he was on the show last month talking about his new book still broke uh, a book about Walmart and particularly the people who work at Walmart. Uh, and Rick uh, is joining us today to talk more broadly. Uh, Rick, um, I don't want this to become just another conversation about your uh, your um, your still broke book. But what did the research and writing of your book about Walmart teach you, and what should it teach us about the fate of the American working class? Yeah, well, you know, in terms of unions, which uh, is where you started uh, with that NPR piece, and I think, you know, really an interesting kind of surge by organized labor in 2022, but also um, very unclear kind of what it means and whether, as Steve Greenhouse, uh, the great labor writer now at the Century Foundation has framed it, you know, is this uh, kind of the beginning of a, of a movement, the resurgence of a movement or just a moment? And I think that's the, the big question as we head into 2023. Um, what my book on Walmart you know, showed me was this was a company that um, over its history fiercely resisted unionization uh, to the point that the United Food and Commercial Workers, the, the union that really has tried to, to organize Walmart workers over the years has largely given up and kind of the anti-union playbook that Walmart put into place very successfully um, you know, you see it now, that same playbook being used at Amazon and Starbucks and other companies that are really trying to resist unionization. That was an interesting piece. I'm sure you saw it as well in The New Yorker um, from yesterday yeah. uh, about this discrepancy between pro-union sentiment and U.S. law. Is that the biggest issue, that the law itself is designed to undermine unions mostly or certainly not be sympathetic, whereas the broad cultural sent sentiment is in favor of labor unions in America today? Yeah, I, I think that is definitely a key issue. Um, and there's a couple ways to look at that. One is just that labor law is antiquated, right? L labor law was essentially written in the 1930s and, you know, it's been adjusted some through the years. Um, but it's, you know, it was built for the 20th century economy, not for the 21st century economy. Uh, when you saw unionization in the U.S. at its height 
it was largely through large manufacturing right companies right general electric and us steel and so on that were organized general motors um but the economy has shifted it's a service economy primarily now and it is much harder to organize service workers um the law is really kind of two steps behind at the same time employer resistance has grown tremendously over the years and one way that labor law and labor regulation lags is there's just not a big penalty there's not a big cost to companies that violate labor law and so at the end of the day it is much more cost efficient in a pure economic sense to resist unionization even if you break the law in doing so the penalties you pay if any are minor and it's certainly a lot less than you'd have to pay if you came to the bargaining table and negotiated a collective bargaining agreement with worker representatives at a union it's very chilling i'd never really quite thought of it in the in those terms the new yorker piece focuses on the struggle of starbucks and amazon workers they're different but do they between the two of them starbucks and amazon do they capture the dilemma the challenges and the reality of poorly paid work in america today i guess wall the, the walmart worker would fall more into the 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 amazon category yeah. than the starbucks one yeah, in some ways, yeah, and certainly uh, Walmart warehouse or distribution center workers, right, would would be very analogous to frontline Amazon workers at their distribution centers, um, right, and and you know Starbucks workers might even be a little you know similar in, in many ways to retail workers, you know, in the front lines of stores. Look, all of them are uh, not you know paid a living wage by and large. Um, they really struggle on the pay front. When you say they're not paid a living wage, you've done a lot of work um, mm -hmm. at the uh, the Drucker Institute on figuring out what exactly a, a minimum wage is. What is that? And, and what are they earning, a, a typical Starbucks or Amazon worker? Yeah. So, you know, you have minimum wages now, like I think in the case of, uh, of Amazon, that's, you know, at least at $15 an hour, um, maybe even be a bit higher Um than that. Um, and, you know, Starbucks is, you know, getting toward that. Walmart now is paying an average wage of a little over $17 an hour. Their minimum is $12 an hour. But again, you know, that is not a living wage in, in most of the country. What so is that? Um... There's, a, there's a great organization called Living Wage for Us that has done a lot of actually hard data around this. Right. And a family living wage for 80% of Americans or living Americans living in 80% of counties in the US is $20 an hour or higher. That's a family living. Wage. And what does that come out to? I mean, if you do what an average, how many Well, if you're a full-time worker, if you're a full-time worker, right, $15 an hour is a little over $30,000 a year. And it's funny, we've, we've gotten conditioned, I think, in this country to think about the fight for 15 and you hear kind of reflexively now, right, people, oh, they're making $15 an hour. That sounds good. And then you say to people, well, you know, if they have full-time hours, right, and they're working 40 hours a week, that's a little over $30,000 a year. That's not much at all. So the Amazon and, and, and Starbucks unions, are they struggling for the same thing, to raise wages, for yes. working conditions, negotiating power? What are the core struggles at the moment on these fronts. all of all of the above right it is it is really around pay and working conditions um i think for those you know two uh unions that are that are trying to organize there 
And look, Amazon, both, both are great examples of both the kind of the triumphs and the challenges here, right? The triumphs we saw in 2022, the challenges we saw in what lies ahead. And so what do I mean by that, right? Historic victory by the Amazon Workers Union in April, uh, organizing this facility, this big Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, uh, New York, right? Chris Smalls, right? Historic victory for organized labor. But the following month, the same union lost another election uh, in uh, Staten Island. And then right. in October, lost a second election just outside of Albany. And so it was you know, literally kind of one step forward, two steps back. Starbucks, I don't know what they're up to now. Last I looked, it was you know, approaching 300 stores or so organized. Which is, which is tremendous, right? And tremendous you know, gains on the one hand in terms of starting from zero. On the other hand, uh, you know, there are 9,000 Starbucks in the US, so it's a tiny fraction overall. And every one of these is a mountain to climb. You're also the author of another really interesting book from 2017, The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. This union struggle, of course, needs to focus on the minimum wage. It can't really focus on good versus bad jobs. What did you find in, in that book? And how much of this crisis and the challenge and struggle of working people in America is because of a decline of good jobs? Well, it's the decline of good jobs, but it's also in part the decline of unions. I think those things go hand in hand. One of the things that we saw in the era of you know good jobs, if you will, so sort of from uh, the end of World War II up until the early 1970s, when unionization in this country was at its height. And in the, in the 50s, right, unionization rate was over, you know, a third of private sector workers were organized. That's down now to about 6% of the private sector workforce. So just this tremendous inexorable decline over decades. And what you find is that when 25, 30% of the labor force is organized, there's a spillover effect. And what that means is it's not just union workers who benefit directly from uh, negotiating contracts for better wages and benefits and working conditions, but even non-union companies, when it's 25, 30% of the labor force to keep up and to compete for talent, they have to provide better wages and benefits and working conditions. And so there's the spillover effect and everyone's boat gets lifted. Um, when it's at 6%, that is just not the case. There is no longer this spillover effect. The kind of jobs that exist at Starbucks and Amazon, of course, exist all over the world. But when you compare the rights of workers in America, minimum wage, the power of unions, how does America come out in comparison to Germany or Korea um, or even countries like Brazil or China? Yeah, much weaker labor laws here um, compared to other developed countries, for sure. Um, look, we are seeing some efforts around the U.S. to try and mirror um, more of a European model. So very specifically in California, a law was passed um, to cover the fast food industry. And this would be a version of what's called sectoral bargaining. And this is very common in Europe. And so really the entire industry would come to the table with representatives from industry, and in this case, government representatives as well, and they would uh, negotiate uh, an agreement that would cover uh, the industry, kind of an industry-wide contract would emerge, rather than going, you know, company by company, 
location by location, which is, which is what U.S. labor law forces unions to do, this would be a sector-wide uh, effort. And it is one of the ways that European workers have more voice and power. And so um, California signed into law that this would happen in the fast food industry. Already, a restaurant coalition and other business groups um, have been able to gather enough signatures to challenge this law uh, by ballot measure. Um, and so that's coming. And I think it's going to be a real challenge to, to keep that law in place. We did a show earlier this week with Larry, um, Larry Downs, a tech expert. And he says that what's happening in tech when it comes to regulation is that the the war, the, the, the war, the front of the war is shifted from the federal level to the local and state mm -hmm. level. Is the same happening then on a union front? Are we going to find some, I'm guessing, some states like California, which are way more liberal than Texas or Florida or certainly states in, in the South? Yep, I think, I think you will. I think you're already seeing that. Obviously, I just cited the California example. You see the uh, Washington state and the city of Seattle being progressive when it comes to trying to uh, encourage more job quality and worker voice and, and power. Um, Illinois just passed a worker bill of rights um, that codifies uh, the ability of workers to collectively bargain and sort of challenges this notion of, a, of you know, right to work states. And so um, there, you know, there are definitely local and state efforts uh, that are moving faster than what we're seeing on the national level. So we're going to see in the future sort of a degree, if you like, of self-segregation of in, uh, workers who value who value being empowered, of unions going to live in places like Seattle um, or Chicago, uh, perhaps New York, in contrast to other cities which will be anti-union cities, maybe Dallas or Miami? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how much mobility workers have, particularly low-wage workers, um, to pick up and move their lives. It can be expensive to, to do that. Um, I think what you're seeing, you know, more is you've seen over decades, companies move to right to work states and places where it is harder for workers to organize. You've seen a shift in business um, to those locations. Your, uh, your Drucker Institute um, focuses on evaluating American capitalism. One of your features is America's best managed companies. Are there models of companies, Rick? that manage themselves in the context of respect for labor unions. Certainly Starbucks and, and Amazon wouldn't fall into that category. I'm guessing you you're ambivalent about Walmart, but are there models of companies that are profitable and at the same time respect their workers and pay them properly? There certainly are. I mean, Costco, for again, is often cited as the anti-Walmart in a bunch of ways, and, and they do uh, have unions and, or, you know, they negotiate, uh, you know, with organized labor um, and seem to do just fine. Uh, interestingly, you mentioned tech. Microsoft has come out and said that it would not oppose unionization. Um, and so that was a real marker. And I think they're seen in many ways as kind of now the counterexample in, you know, in the tech space when it comes to this. One of the stories over the holiday period has been the collapse of Southwest, functional collapse, disintegration. 
um, and Union uh, Southwest Union has been very vocal in in, yes. in in blaming Southwest's infrastructure for this crisis. What about in transportation? Some some airlines and transportation companies are more unionized than others. What are the the models here, Rick? Well, yeah, you're seeing a really interesting, right? What's going on at, at Southwest, which is, it's crazy to me, the, the speed with which, you know, perception of companies can turn. I mean, Southwest, I think, had, you know, has had very high customer satisfaction, uh, you know, scores um, by all kinds of measures over a long period, a much beloved airline by, by consumers generally. But then obviously, what a, what a disaster it has been um, over this period. And yes, the union there is pushed back really hard. Um, you know, apparently their their workers have been pushed to working incredibly long hours and incredibly you know frigid conditions um, through these terrible winter storms to the point that you know they're claiming some of their folks on the ground are getting frostbite. Um, so you know, really, really awful. Um, and in the face of angry consumers who probably blame them, uh, what about white collar yeah. unions and strikes? Uh, there's a imminent strike of Akron teachers next month. Um, they're not particularly well paid either, but what's yeah. your take on white collar unions, particularly teachers? Yeah. So teachers, you know, and, and the academic space uh, in general, and I, I see a question in the, in the chat about uh, unionization and academia. Right. Um, so, the, uh, the UC yep. uh, graduate students have been on strike and they've actually been quite successful. Well, yeah, so, yes, you know, for, for some of them, yes, they were able to, to negotiate, uh, you know, a, a better deal. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it really points to, you know, where we started, which is this idea that, that America runs really on a low pay, low wage economy, um, and that there are all kinds of jobs, and it's not just fast food jobs or Walmart workers or those in an Amazon warehouse or those serving, you know, espresso at, at Starbucks. But there are many, many jobs that, you know, we think of maybe as, you know, white collar um, that are also really low paid. And, and I think, you know, we certainly are seeing this in the academic space. And you are also, you know, seeing unionization there. Uh, interestingly, it's been the United Auto Workers that has very successfully organized uh, a number of university campuses. And, and why is that happening? It's happening because folks don't have enough to live on and uh, they are, you know, being asked to teach and, uh, you know, take care of students and they themselves don't have enough to live on. To what extent are we living in again? I mean, we hear a lot about cultural wars over gender, sexuality, what can and can't be taught in the classroom, but to what extent is there an ongoing war over unions? Uh, I found a piece in the new Republic uh, published recently about, uh, the Freedom Foundation, uh, a right-wing think tank designed to attack the idea of unions. Um, is there a, a culture war going on when it comes to unions, Rick, in America today? I, I think there is. I think there is. I mean, there is, again, it, it's from the corporate sector, but certainly, you know, their allies. And again, this their allies are now mixed on a bunch of uh, issues in terms of, of how right-wing think tanks and, and so on uh, you know, assess corporate America at this point, right? They think corporate America has become woke in many ways. But a place I think that they often find common ground is this fierce resistance to organized labor. How can it be justified? Uh, what, 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 is there an argument 
that you, workers shouldn't be allowed to unionize? Or is it always used by the owners, by corporate elites to simply uh, increase their profitability and essentially exploit their labor force? So look, I think the arguments for, you know, whether workers want to join a union, some may say, look, I'm not sure I can get a better deal. Um, and, and I'm still going to end up paying union dues. That's an individual's decision, in my mind, to, to make. Um, although there is a lot of evidence that, you know, union workers are paid a bit more than 10% more on average than their non-union peers uh, in the same industries, in the same roles. Um, again, there is a lot of evidence that over time, unions have really uh, created great working conditions, better pay, better benefits um, for, for Americans. Um, but look, it's, it's an individual's choice. Um, I don't think anybody would quarrel with that. Unions have made their own missteps. They have failed to innovate. Some have been beset by scandal. Um, you know, unions are far from perfect. They're like any organization led by human beings. They, they make mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes. Um, but to say that, you know, workers shouldn't be able to make the decision for themselves is to me incredibly anti-democratic. And the notion, which is you hear Howard Schultz at Starbucks and many other corporate leaders say, hey, we don't need this third party coming between us and our workers, right? But it's the workers themselves are deciding if they want representation. They are the union and it's not, they become the union. It is not an outside force. And I, I think that's what all union busters say. They make it as if there is some third party entity coming in. It's really up to the workers. And to me, again, that's, that's democracy. If the U.S. Supreme Court wasn't really Donald Trump's in, in terms of its political makeup, would it be likely that the Supreme Court would actually address this issue and, and make it a, a constitutional right to join a union? Well, again, it, you know, I, I think, no, I, I don't see the current Supreme Court. Well, that, that was my point. If, yeah. But if, if the, the Supreme Court had a different political makeup, I mean, it seems as much of a right as the right to free speech, the right perhaps to an abortion, the right to join a labor union, as it, the right to belong to a church or join a political party. Uh, I, I, I would agree. I, I, yeah, I, I think, again, I think, you know, with this pro-business court, we're a long way from that. Um, but I think you're going to continue to see efforts at the state and local level uh, to help workers gain more voice and power. Um, I think that if this fast food industry bill, uh, this fast act in California can survive this ballot measure challenge by industry, um, I think you'll see the Service Employees International Union try and spread that model to other states. And again, that, that could be a huge advance if we can see sectoral bargaining begin to take root across the country, uh, that could be quite significant. I have to admit, I'm not as well versed on this stuff as I should be. And I would much prefer to shop at a, at a Costco, which is pro-union than a Walmart that isn't. Are there ways that all these companies get evaluated on the union front? We all know about Starbucks and Amazon. They're the the poster children or the anti-poster children. But are there ways of determining how these companies treat their workers simply well, without doing massive research or having to read books by guys like yourself? 
Not great ways. I mean, the truth is that in terms of job quality, um, the measures are very few and far between. Um, I actually worked on a piece of legislation with the state controller of California, Betty Yee, um, over the past couple of legislative cycles here to try and mandate that large companies, so those with a thousand or more employees in California, would have to disclose a series of measures on how they treat their workers in terms of pay and benefits and turnover, safety, equity, some, some kind of basic things. And the resistance was incredible. We, the bill died two sessions in a row, at, really at the hands of the California Chamber of Commerce, which went after us with every argument imaginable, um, most of them not really true. Um, and we were on the so-called job killer list. Our bill was on the job killer list, um, which is pretty much a death knell uh, in the California legislature. So no, companies, both the state level and at the national level, have fiercely resisted having to disclose basic information on how they treat their workers. That would be on my wish list for 2023 or the 2020s. Yeah. What about the politics of all this? Biden, of course, is certainly mm -hmm. in your camp, uh, I'm guessing, uh, 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 Rick, when it comes to union rights. But he's complicated, too, uh, given... Uh, the railway strike and his yep. forcing uh, the, 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 the unions back to work. What's your take on Biden uh, and his role in all this? Yeah, I, so... Particularly in 2022. Right. Well, he, he definitely, you know, got dinged in some quarters in terms of uh, being, you know, so pro-labor uh, because of uh, what happened in the rail strike where he, you know, forced those workers to go back to work without winning... Uh, seven days of, of paid sick leave, which is what they were after. And apparently, uh, you know, from, from what I understand, he could still by executive order um, make that a reality. Um, and and that, that has not happened. That said, by and large, um, he has been uh, the most pro-labor president that we've had since FDR. Um, and you can see it in, in various ways, including increasing funding in his budget for the National Labor Relations Board much needed. Um, and, and so I give him actually very high marks all in all, although, you know, not perfect. Rick, let's end on 2023. Uh, what would you like to see? What is doable on the labor front in terms of addressing the minimum wage uh, and trying to help many workers who, to borrow some language from you, are still broke? Yeah. So I, again, I would like to see this sectoral bargaining bill in California um, survive and become a model for other states. Um, I think it is a really, again, important way to uh, advance labor law in this country, um, and I'd like to see that survive. I'd also love to see Walmart, um, to come back to them, um, raise their wages. They've done, they've done some over the last eight years, um, the subject of my book. I think there's much further that they can go. Um, and I would, would love to see that happen. They are the standard setter in many ways, um, not only in retail, but beyond as the largest employer in the country. And then lastly, I would like to see, even if look, we're far from having a Congress that can't get past 725 an hour as a minimum wage, but I'd like to see this country have a real honest discussion about what a living wage means and what it needs to be. And for people watching who really care about this, should we just simply stop ordering from Amazon? It's very convenient. Mm -hmm. Their prices are good. And stop going to Starbucks? 
Look, I, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't tell you I order from Amazon. I tried to stop it. We all do. I mean, and my consumer head got, you know, got the better of me. Um, my impatience of, you know, having to wait two days for a book to come instead of it coming, you know, that afternoon or whatever. So, uh, look, I think that's that's an individual choice. But I do think that consumer pressure certainly can help if if, you know, there's a big enough backlash. 